Welcome to Self Talk Show podcast, the show where we dive deep into the world of leadership and personal development. I'm your host Mitali Ohri and today we have a special guest with us, Robert Donelson. Robert is the founder of The Lost Art of Collaboration, a company that specializes in unique approaches to leadership and collaboration. He's here to share his insights and experience with us. Welcome Robert to Self Talk Show. So to kick things off, can you share your life journey and how it inspired you to come up with the concept of lost art of collaboration? It's kind of a long story. I'll keep it short. I was born in semi-rural Walnut Creek, California, which is in the East Bay of the San Francisco Bay Area, to a very large family in 1957. I I spent most of my time growing up as an outdoorsman. Started hunting and fishing and backpacking with my dad when I was about 9 years of age. I was hand tilling large gardens with my shovel at 10 years and started delivering newspapers at about 11. I was a pretty serious kid, but I was taken to daydreaming about arctic explorers like Shackleton or any other high adventure in nature that my dad had already exposed me to whenever I found the adults around me boring me with something else they thought that it was important to tell me. For lots of different reasons, many of the adults in my life other than my mom and dad, my brother, and an adult cousin of mine didn't really impress me very much. I learned early on that most adults just simply didn't make sense to me and with some of them, I felt they were very dangerous, so they and their advice were something to be avoided at all costs. By the time I was 13, I was a full-fledged hunter, fisherman, and outdoorsman, and we were going into nature sometimes upwards of 18 to 20 trips a year. That went on for quite some time. I can remember throughout elementary school and high school my folks shamelessly writing notes excusing me from school because of course we saw nature as school. Over the decades some of my experiences in nature were near death and quite extraordinary but uh, I'll I'll never forget them and they forever helped me uh, with my problem solving through life. I received various leadership recognition awards throughout elementary school and high school years. Citizenship awards, most inspirational player on the honor roll every quarter, graduating with high honors. My formative years were throughout the 60s and 70s, which helped to expand my curiosity of the human condition. Well, and some of those lessons led to some depression, so with good comes the not so good. After some college I went directly into industry. Many of these jobs were inherently dangerous and co-workers were maimed and some died. Working my way up through the various types of industries included a regular advancement from journeyman, working foreman, first-line supervisor, middle manager and ultimately senior management positions. I discovered something later in life that actually occurred at a young age and that was that I had become an excellent problem solver. I had gained a highly effective working knowledge of human collaborative systems. When I was faced with an extraordinary situation in 1985 and I'll talk more about that in a bit. Along with hydraulics, chemistry, biology, microbiology and electrical systems. I was able to learn from nature at a very young age that many of my problem-solving techniques that I learned in nature I was able to actually bring into the workplace. My outdoor stories as I noted previously are populated with several near death experiences that I th- I think also positively impacted my perspective on life, 
and people, our neighborhoods, our communities, and our workplaces. In 1985, I came to work for an agency that had just recovered from a labor strike. Bad blood was flowing down every hallway in every room. I showed up as the new guy, a new shift supervisor, just at the right moment, or I might say just at the wrong moment. Things were pretty bad. Drug and alcohol use on company time, about three or four different cliques that didn't get along with each other, with everybody else just trying to keep their head down. People were stealing from personal lockers and lunches. Cars were getting keyed. Nails were going up against car tires in the company parking lot. And it didn't take too long before my car was getting keyed and and I got my first flat tire. It was the Wild West and I almost left, but then I guess the more stubborn part of me decided to see if I could stay and make a difference. There's lots of things that happened over the next five years, but the end result was this agency became an industry leader. That's what started my entire career of developing highly collaborative systems. That's quite a background. Robert, you have talked about the lost art of collaboration. What, in your view, are the fundamentals of collaboration? I think the fundamentals of collaboration are several fold. But just the first two steps is most of the work. One of the most important first steps is fear reduction and making sure people are using their frontal cortex for decision making. As long as people are using their frontal cortex, it results in logical, rational, and ethical behavior, which is exactly what you need for collaboration between humans. If people feel threatened, the decision making area of the brain switches over to the amygdala and the only toolbox you have left is fight, flight, or freeze. And that's not going to do you uh, any good when you try to get people to collaborate. The key to step number one is to purposefully create a socially designed environment that promotes the reduction of fear as its top priority. I'd say the second most important step is to simply increase the human skill sets of the individuals who are wanting to participate in a collaborative relationship. So in other words, the skill sets include how to solve problems, how to manage your productivity, how to become an expert, how to build effective interpersonal relationships, how to focus on a mission to define success, or how to use continuous improvement to innovate in order to improve your circumstances. The key to step number two is training, 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 and then retraining and retraining. In other words, with step number two, a lot of times the reason people don't collaborate is because they don't know how. So you got to teach them. With step number one, you have to set up the human brains in the group with excellent decision making. And with step number two, you're simply giving them the skill sets that they can use with their newly acquired excellent decision making processes. So once again, fear reduction number one, skill building number two. The results are extraordinary. If a group is not experiencing these extraordinary collaborative results, the problem is generally found within not adequately applying either one of those first two steps. Those were some solid fundamentals of collaboration. Your book, Collaborative Power Grab, is quite intriguing. Could you tell us how it came about and give us a gist of its contents? Who is this book for? And what are the 15-step toolbox that's included in this book? Collaborative Power Grab essentially records all the human success behaviors that I've learned over the last 40 years. 
Some leaders might be demonstrating some of these behaviors, but often there's a long list of behaviors leaders are not using that they need to start using and a long list of behaviors they are using that they need to stop. There's a total of 15 steps and each step has a handful of starting now actions that allows the student to blow past theory and go directly to what works. Let me talk a little bit more about that. Much of the leadership training industry talks in terms of pontifications or Venn diagrams or complex organizational formulas that don't translate into effective in the field leadership behaviors after the training session awards the student with a certificate of completion. So they'll say things like, encourage students to have a better sense of vision, motivate your team, increase your quality of communication. But really, what do those mean? So the training is lost in translation. And when the leader goes back to work, they just keep using stuff that they used in the past. The starting now actions that I provide are specific practical behaviors that when used in the workplace immediately after they've been learned will over time produce the predictable outcomes of higher levels of collaboration, higher levels of mission-centered success, and higher levels of job satisfaction for everybody involved. Essentially, this is the enhanced environment of which many studies have been performed which have determined that the use of these types of techniques become and create very highly successful organizations who are also then able to attract and keep the best talent. There are five steps that train every leader how to master the relationship with their supervisor by using some very basic but extraordinary behaviors that fully supports the leader stack above you. There are 10 steps that train every leader on how to increase and maximize the performance of the team below them. With all 10 steps, I'm also able to describe for the leader the experience of the follower once they receive these types of supportive cultural training lessons. Suffice it to say, all 15 steps essentially cause all the humans in the work culture to become highly effective humans. And not only do they become highly effective human beings at work, they also become highly effective human beings in their families and their communities. That's incredible. I would encourage our listeners to head to Amazon and order your copy of Robert's book, Collaborative Power Grab. Speaking of collaboration, how do you define a collaborative culture and why is it so important? A collaborative culture is an intentionally designed social experience that achieves two primary objectives at the same time. It creates a group who can achieve mission success based on the operating rules of the human brain. When mission success is achieved by using the operating rules of the human brain, normally the group is successful, but it's also able to do so based on the foundational needs for increasing job satisfaction of the individuals who are members of that culture. When done correctly, extraordinary things start to happen. People are able to identify a sense of meaning in their work. They're able to experience extraordinary and very satisfying relationships with other members of the culture. And in combination, people start to see themselves as becoming part of something larger than themselves, which is a primal need for every human in every group. Deep down, the Homo sapien is completely aware that success is based on social interaction 
and not the rugged individual as perhaps some cultural memes will promote incorrectly. Deep down, your brain knows that it's safety in numbers. And not only is it safety in numbers, it's success in numbers. There are many studies that confirm this to be so, and they're beyond the scope of this interview. But suffice it to say, helping humans to successfully collaborate is no longer a mystery, and we have many, many examples in the world right now that nonetheless need this significant training. There are highly successful groups in the world, but on balance, there are millions of groups across the planet still using draconian, outdated, and ineffective methods of leadership and collaboration. The need is significant, so there's no better time to start improving the human condition in groups than right now. I completely agree. Collaboration is a buzzword in workplaces today. How do you define collaboration in a professional setting? And how can organization foster a collaborative workplace culture? Can you share any success stories or instances where organizations benefited from this approach? Collaboration in the workplace is defined by the quality of the relationships between the members of the work group in such a way that mission accomplishment occurs simultaneously with general increases in job satisfaction for the members of the group. The benefits of collaboration typically result in a more successful group. Regardless of what the mission statement says, it is more easily achieved and more reliably achieved when the human relationships within the group are collaborative. The benefit for group members is not only do they have a more satisfying experience as they're earning their salaries and wages, they increase skill sets that benefit their personal life well beyond the work group. This increase in human skill sets benefits them, their family, and their community. The example I can give is when I experienced this horribly dysfunctional group back in 1985 and by using these approaches, using these starting now actions, resulted in this group becoming an industry leader in about five years time. Jim Heskett and John Cotter back in the 1990s in their book Corporate Culture gave us the results of how they followed a large group of companies over an 11 year period and classified them as either enhanced or non-enhanced environments. The results are beyond reproach as the enhanced or collaborative environments quickly outpaced the other groups in performance in terms of revenue, total number of employees, and stock price. The benefits of a highly collaborative group have been confirmed for quite some time. It's not a pipe dream, it's already a reality. Right. Let's talk about the lost art of collaboration. Could you share more about your company and the training programs it offers? What unique approaches have you applied in your company? Also, would you like to enlighten us regarding collaborative group behaviors? The lost art of collaboration is a small, dedicated group of individuals who know how to train other work groups to get the same collaborative beneficial outcomes of mission success supported by job satisfaction. The approaches I apply in my own company are the same approaches I promote and train my client companies to participate in as well. Collaborative group behaviors are essentially the 15 steps along with a handful of starting now actions for each step. Collaborative group behaviors fall into eight basic categories, mission, culture, effective interpersonal relationships, high-quality communication, technical competency, productivity, 
problem solving, and continuous improvement. Essentially, each one of the 15 steps borrows from one or more of these categories of behaviors from which the starting now actions that are the most appropriate for each step is identified. Could you share some of the do's and don'ts to advance any organization to high levels of collaboration and competence? My answer is there are many, but let me give you some low-hanging fruit. Immediately stop intimidation and anger-driven work environments by removing bullies and removing demonstrations of explosive anger. This is especially important if you're finding these types of behaviors from anybody in a leadership position. Immediately start a training program that identifies each person's weakest skill set as the next training lesson they are then provided. And then the next weakest skill set, working your way up from everybody's weakest skill set from the bottom up. Immediately start a training program that trains each person to expert levels, no longer being satisfied by merely bringing people to levels of competent. Immediately train everyone in your group to be a problem-solving expert. Immediately start to regularly recognize every group member when there are situations where they're demonstrating good work behaviors. Expression of appreciation should take the form of a personal thank you and then be followed up with an email recording the good behavior and appreciation to the supervisor's supervisor. Recognition should be focusing on at least one observation every two to three months with every direct report. Immediately announce that collaboratively getting along with your fellow coworker and or satisfying the needs of group members outside your department is now as important as your technical skills. Immediately communicate to your group members that if they have any issues, problems, questions, they should seek the advice of their supervisor. All of these need to be placed in the performance expectations of the performance evaluation system of the company that employs these behaviors. You'll notice in all cases, they say immediately, and I pretty much mean that. That's truly enlightening. Do the approaches and methods used in your training programs only apply to people with leadership roles? Can senior level managers or entrepreneurs also employ these strategies to foster collaboration within their teams? Every human that walks the face of the earth in some way, shape or form can benefit from the starting now actions found within these 15 steps. Because they are intentionally designed according to the operating rules of the human brain and have been field tested to consciously and intentionally design a collaborative human experience within a group of humans, it doesn't matter where you go, doesn't matter who you talk to, the starting now actions applied over time are universally effective at producing the outcomes promised by essentially increasing the human skill sets of each group member. Right. As a thought leader and change management expert, what advice do you offer to management leaders who struggle to deal with changes either in their organization or in their team? The most effective ways to get your group on board with the process of change is rather straightforward. But before I start, what's important for every leader to understand is that to most people, change means a threat to their social standing in the group. In other words, and this has been proven, regardless of why they don't like the change, the true issue is people are afraid that they will lose social standing in the group with the advent of the new change. 
and regardless of what other excuse they might give why they are against the change, this is the true and subliminal basis for their objection. So here's the solution. Go out and ask your direct reports for their good ideas on how they can enhance the work environment, how they can increase productivity and any ideas that they have that'll save time and money and make this place a better place to be in and to work in. If they're like every other single group I've ever seen, they're filled with great ideas on how to improve the workplace and how to improve productivity, how to save time and money. And start using their ideas. And when you do that, everything changes. From their perspective, I'm now an employee, a group member in a group that's using my ideas for change, which means now I'm a full participant in how this group is in changing, a full participant in how this group is improving, right? Now I'm part owner. Now I'm part of something larger than myself. See what's happening here? So true. What's your life mission, Robert? Gosh, that's a big question. I think the best answer I can give to that is to leave my family, my community, and the human condition better than I found it. I like to improve the human condition at the small scale in my family, at the medium scale at my community, and at the larger scale of the world. If I think I have an idea that's going to improve that condition, I want to put it out there and make it work. That's beautiful. Do you have any final messages or advice for our listeners? I have many actually, and I'll just throw out a few. I hope they make sense. Never believe that you're unable to create change or to improve the condition of your group, however you define them. Whether that be your family, your community, the world, or maybe all three. Often we succumb to the goldfish syndrome, not able to recognize we're surrounded by water. The human is surrounded by information, information that can be categorically destructive while appearing to be helpful. In these cases, humans will be found working against their own best interest, taking everybody else down with them. However, nonetheless, somewhere in there, there includes the information that you can use to improve the condition of your group. So I'd say stay with the basics for everyone in your group. They need some control, they need some inclusion, and they need some openness. Remember that dignity and respect are food for the heart, and without it, it starves. Love is only transformative if it stands on the shoulders of compassion and redemption and things like a serious dedication to simply moving forward, even if it's one step at a time, to improve the human condition. I think there's no such thing as failure as long as you don't quit and as long as you don't die. So if you're not quitting and you're not dying, you're not failing. The only way we learn to succeed is finding out what doesn't work. And I guess lastly, I would just say, decide what you want people saying about you as they walk past your urn of ashes, and then go out every day and start earning those words right now. Those were some really wonderful messages. Robert, you have mentioned the human condition more than once. And of course, we are talking about collaborative groups and human collaboration in groups. If someone were to ask you to explain what is happening in our modern world today, and how it impacts the ability for humans to collaborate in groups and to meet day-to-day -day issues. Can you tell us what you think is the best path forward? Sure, let's talk about today's frame. I would explain that it is a fact that most people, most of the time, 
have not received the training that they need to be an effective human being. And if there's any doubt about that, just turn on the nightly news. I would explain that what humans are taught before they show up in the workplace as young adults is much less important than what they haven't been taught. The fact is, is the world is horribly undertrained and nobody genuinely realizes that. Instead, normalized mediocre performance infects the group consciousness, systematically lowering the bar of achievement to redefine success all the while now not needing any additional improvement in performance to claim that very same success. I would explain that even though the news feed is filled with maliciousness, the downfall of humans will instead be by its inability to collaborate and solve problems, which relentlessly time and time again demonstrates to us that the largest true challenge humanity has is human incompetence, not maliciousness. Now there's a lot more going on than just that, but you asked me about human collaboration in groups. There's a whole other discussion about the scope of this, this work as it relates to the human condition. We can talk about that some other time. So let's talk about history. Well, I would explain that humans don't know a lot of stuff when they first show up in the world. Unlike a robin whose next season's nest building instructions are sitting hardwired into their brain or the newborn wildebeest who starts walking within minutes upon arrival, humans need to be fed and clothed and nurtured and trained for many years and everything they need to know in order to succeed as their future self. Essentially, the human first arrives completely helpless and remains that way for years. This should be a clue. I would explain that a person's ability to get along with their fellow human being is highly dependent on the environment that they experience even though we are all genetically predisposed to collaborate based on the social training received throughout the nearly 3,000 generations of our Paleolithic era. Again, that we are predisposed to collaborate is beyond the scope of our conversation today and I could talk more about that some other time. However, there's no doubt in my mind that what was laid down as the base for our willingness to collaborate today is what we learned collectively over the centuries. And I'm not the only person saying that. It wasn't just safety in numbers, it was also success in numbers. And I think it's clear that the safety in numbers and the success in numbers is what draws people towards joining groups. I think it's pretty clear that joining groups is a social survival tool. And it's what draws people towards the primal desire to be part of something larger than themselves. And when you look at it this way, a lot of things start to make sense. I would explain that we now know, with the primal training humans experienced through co-evolutionary gene expression, yeah, that's what it's called, that the collaborative human is desperately wanting to show itself. This is constantly reconfirmed when we see examples where the psychologically safe and supportive social culture is created, and alas, the collaborative human will indeed always rush to show themselves the moment it's safe to do so. Yes, I said always. And yes, I said safe. So once it's very safe, the collaborative human reliably shows up. In other words, we have the tools and we have the talent. And the only thing lacking is the right circumstantial environment to bring those two powerhouses together. Okay, so let's talk toolboxes. I would explain that because of the skills humans haven't been taught, it places them in situations where they feel fearful 
fearful of humiliation, disempowered because they don't know how to exert control in the typical daily situations they find themselves in, and quite frankly, are unable to collaborate because they're unable to develop the highly effective relationships necessary for their advancement. Okay, so what this means is they're missing a skill set, and when humans are missing a skill set, I propose that we hand them the skill set, we teach them how to do these things, teach them how to collaborate, and that's when things start to change. So let's go back to fear. I would explain that we now know that fearfulness that is generated from our inability to develop collaborative environments has our human brain steeped in a fearful amygdala T with a limited toolbox of fight, flight, or freeze as our only options. Now back to the primal lessons where we acquired the skills to collaborate when in a psychologically safe environment to do so. According to science and my own personal observations and perhaps yours as well, when in the absence of fear, the frontal cortex with the expansive toolbox of logical, rational, and ethical thinking which precedes logical, rational, and ethical behaviors is in charge and therefore, and so on, making our world a better place, one person at a time. I would explain that furthermore, that most leaders on the planet have no idea they're even dealing with a human toolbox, much less the wrong ones, that then causes them to unknowingly and incoherently create work environments that invite the fear-generated limited toolbox work culture, instead of the human-succeeding expansive toolbox work culture. Let's talk about the hands-on, step-by-step process of how to do that. I would explain that when you train leaders in the understanding of these larger concepts and give them the boots-on-the-ground methodologies that I'm about to explain, everything changes for the better when it comes to human collaboration in the group. I would explain that when you train people to be mission-centered experts, when you train people how to collaborate, when you train people to be communication experts, when you train people how to be technical experts, when you train them how to be productivity experts and problem solving and continuous improvement experts, that it radically changes their lives for the better. I would explain that when you radically change a person's life for the better with this type of training, they come into their workplace every day radically changed, which means they come into your workplace every day radically changed, and your work culture is then changed for the better. I would explain that with this type of human effectiveness training, we now become part of something larger than ourselves. We start to feel as important as we really are, and we now have control over our destiny. As Mary Oliver says in her poem, Wild Geese, you are now announcing your place in the family of things. We are no longer a cog and now can reinvent and reinvite nature's original intentions of what we love as the effective human back into our daily lives and that we now truly have found a home in the family of things. Thank you, Robert, for sharing your insights and experiences with us today. It's been a pleasure having you on Self Talk Show. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. If you found this episode valuable, don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, and share it with your network. I'll be back soon with more inspiring conversations. 
Until then, stay tuned and stay inspired.